Today we will be finishing our study on the second epistle of John. And God willing, next week we will be back to our study of the book of James with pastor teacher Sean Harrelson. And as I said last Sunday, we start studying the second epistle of the apostle John. And we talk about the preeminence of truth and love. We talk about how the apostle made clear that there is no possible love without unity in truth. We also talk about how in the name of Christian love or in the name of Christian unity, a lot of doctrines have been attacked. So please go with me to, in your Bibles to the second epistle of the apostle John, and we will be reading the whole epistle. Verse 1 says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourself, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whomever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elected sister greets you. In the light of this epistle, we, we start talking about four reasons of why truth is preeminent. And we talk about the first one, there is like the truth, truth as the source of love, verses 1 to 3. Truth, the way to walk, verses 4 and 6. Truth, the main distinctive, verses 7 to 11. And truth, the real fellowship, based on verses 12 and 13. So we, stu we studied the first two reasons last Sunday, and we will be studying the last two reasons this morning. So let's just ask the Lord's blessing and guidance this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the opportunity to gather together and be together as a church. Father, we pray that through the exposition of your word, we will be compelled, we will be changed, we will be transformed. Father, I pray that any of my mistakes, any of my misunderstandings, Father, that you will, you will just bring to my brothers and my sisters your truth and your worth, despite of the messenger, Father, that your message will abide in our hearts and minds and will move us to action that glorifies your Son, your holy name, and that through the work of the Holy Spirit we will be able to be good witnesses of your majesty. 
We pray these things this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. So, we all know that there are certain things that make people unique from others. If you belong to a community or you have spent a lot of time with certain community, you adopt certain behaviors. Generalizations help us to understand and comprehend different groups or societies. There are many distinctives among different groups of people that are well known. We normally will assume that a German would always be on time. Or we will assume that a Cuban knows how to dance. Or that a Mexican can eat spicy food. Not all of those can, not all of those can but the fact that someone does not fall into some people's distinctive or identity categories, it makes us feel uneasier, and we even question the identity of these people. I don't need to tell you how many times I have I, I, I've been urged to prove my Mexicanity when people learn that I cannot eat spicy food, and I have to demonstrate that I'm a real Mexican. Well, I'm using this simplistic example to touch on our next reason of why truth is preeminent. And it is because truth is the main distinctive of Christians. And we, we just read verses 7 to 11. And what these verses are going to express is what is the main distinctive. We know that the Bible expresses different distinctives of Christians or what distinctives should, should be about what Christian life looks like. And we can name most of them, hospitality, kindness, honesty, being humble. But clearly, there's two distinctions that are extremely important, that it's the alliance of love and truth in the Christian life, and that should be displayed in our lives in everything that we do. So verse 7 is going to help us to understand and to get the ability to recognize those who lack this distinctive, the distinctive of truth. In the beginning of verse 7, we find John's first warning. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. John, in the past verses, explained how he defined this distinctive of truth and love. But now in this second section, he is going to explain and make his point of why he's making an emphasis on love and truth. He makes this point expressing, expressing why there is no possible unity in between love without truth or truth without love, but they have to come together. So we can see through history different threats that have been against Christian teachings and Christian doctrines. John is trying to warn his readers about all these threats that are going on. And when we think about this specific threat that the people in the first century were, were facing when John is writing, we know that through the centuries, through history, we can see how this attack to this specific doctrine about Christ is still around, and we are still facing attacks to our doctrine. But John is making his first point so that he can introduce what is, his, what is probably his main motivation that urged him to write this letter to these people. That is that the deceivers were rejecting the doctrine of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's point 
is that the only way to avoid being taken by the false teachers is to walk in the truth. So we can see how truth plays a role facing false teaching, but probably it's harder to see love playing a role in our defense and in our resistance to false teaching. But if we think of love in, ter in the terms of John, the true love, the love that abides on truth, we can see that this love compels believers to persevere in love, but also in truth, and to keep guarding and protecting others and to help them to persevere in the truth of the Lord so they can protect themselves and others from the evil teachings and the bad influences. So John is warning his readers that a lot of false teachers are out disseminating this evil teaching. These false teachers were, as we mentioned last Sunday, the Gnostics. And they believed that salvation was achieved through a mystical way, through knowledge and through some kind of immaterial way to approach God. Because for them, the material world, the physical world, was evil or inferior to the spiritual world. Because of this, they rejected the doctrine of incarnation. In their belief system, it would have been impossible to think that Christ could have had a physical body, a human body. Some of them, they went even further teaching the, the heretical idea that the spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus during his baptism and abandoned him in the cross. So if we think about this and we, and we understand the implications of this, we can see how terrible these teachings are. Nevertheless, the Gnostics gain a lot of popularity among people and even among some believers. And honestly, I would love to think that we will be able to see the horrible implications of accepting this poison and to see how profoundly devastating it will be for the church. Well, let me share with you a, personal, a little personal story to illustrate the dangers about moving, changing, or affecting doctrine. I grew up in a brethren church in Mexico City, and this church was established by a solid British missionary in 1928. So this was a church with, with a history. And the brethren are well known for their zeal for truth and sound doctrine. Sometimes, and that's sad, but sometimes even the brethren are well known also because their zeal is too much and they can fall into legalism. Well, when I was a teenager, this change started to change. All, the missionary died, and the older people started gaining age. So a new generation came to take an important role at the church. One person specifically started to play a predominant role at this church. He was a doctor, he had a ton of biblical knowledge, and he was really skilled in Greek and Hebrew. But he started to read the Bible on a critical way. In other words, he started to challenge the fundamental doctrines. 
Although he never spoke openly against any of these doctrines, his teachings and writings were filled with this. The result was a horrible downfall for most of the church. A lot of people start to leave the church, and those who remain, many of them, start living life under a licentious lifestyle, and the church and its members suffer greatly. And I'm saying this because even though we knew that he was teaching against the biblical traditional understanding, no one was wanted to be seen as closed-minded. Some of them were even excited about how fresh the Bible sounds now to them because it did sound different to the biblical traditional way to explain things. But the spiritual consequences and the moral consequences were devastating for this church where I grew up. It's in our day that we have a temptation to be willing to be open-minded, to listen to all the possible interpretations, but that could be dangerous because we can slowly start normalizing people speaking heresy. We can see that John uses really strong language here, probably some language that we will not dare to use. But he's saying you cannot normalize these teachings. You cannot normalize relativism about truth. But I think our fear is not to be seen as intolerant or short-minded most of the times. Now, John does not hesitate to identify these people as deceivers and even as the Antichrist. The nature of the Gnostic teachings will be, de will be deceitful and, def and, and will bring a defective view of Jesus. It will distort how, who he was and what he did. Such, te such teachings without exceptions denied his fully deity and rejected his perfect work of atonement through his crucifixion and resurrection. To such opinions, John backs fire and he says, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now the word antichrist here means against. It could also mean in the place of Christ. But the constant, the contest let us to see that it means against here. And this word is used mainly on the writings of the Apostle John. He's warning people about these deceiving teachings. Dr. Akin explains in a really clear way how to identify these individuals. And he says, and I quote, while interest in this sinister figure coming this sinister figure's coming is popular, and it was as popular as ever. John informs us that his minions are here and have been here since the first century. New Testament scholar Howard Marshall puts, talks about this in this way. He says, and I quote, apocalyptic thoughts prophesize the coming of a supremely evil antagonistic of God in the last days, the lawless one or the beast. This figure is certainly opposed to Christ and attempts to emulate his powers. 
the elders point is that the spirits of opposition to Christ is already present in those who oppose the truth about Christ. So Antichrist is just here for people who are radically, radically opposed to the true doctrine of Christ and are supremely opposed to any of the implications of these teachings. And it's really important to understand it doesn't matter if they confess that they hold the truth and that they love Christ. If their teachings are not aligned with what the scriptures says. Because a lot of people outside is saying, I love Christ, but they don't abide in truth. If we see what verse 8 is teaching us then, this will emphasize why we need to hold fast to the distinctive of truth and why it's so important. John is warning again and giving his readers a piece of advice. Watch yourself. Be aware. Do not think that this will not affect you. This is a common threat. John is joining and is telling his readers to be careful and do not underestimate this warning. He's saying, in our words will be, don't think that you're smarter than them. That you can hang out with them. That you can welcome them into your house and interact with them with no problem. John will say, no. Watch yourself because the consequences are devastating. Now, this imperative is plural. Guarding against false teachers is not just a pastoral duty, but it's a church duty. Our pastors and, and elders and in sound biblical churches, they will oversee the condition of our souls, they will oversee the teachings that are among us. But we as attendees, we as members of the church, play an important role as well. Perseverance in the truth, it's a community duty. And while some can debate in this passage that John is talking about losing their salvation, the context seems to imply that whomever joins a false teacher in their teachings or welcomes them is in the risk of losing rewards that Christ has offered from those or to those who persevere. He's not talking about losing the salvation, but we can find a little, a little bit of a theolo theological tension here. What if someone turns and follows a false teacher? For us as Reformed people, that we embrace the doctrines of grace, we believe that God will make us persevere. So that's God's job anyways, right? So why should I push myself on this if it's God's job? Well, the apostle is really clear in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Let me read that. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. And now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they 
all are not of us. So those who went out is because they were, they were not part of them since the beginning. We are talking how truth is a distinctive and John makes his point about abiding in truth. Perseverance of truth is this one distinctive of the true believer. But again, if we see the context, we can tell that John is not talking at any point about losing a salvation, but he's talking about abiding in truth and having an active role in persevering in truth. In the commentary exalting Jesus, it says, and I really like how, how they put it, it says, for those who have been born from above by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ, it is certain that you will persevere. It is also essential that you do persevere. Every day, we must guard and resist these divisive and destructive persons and these philosophies that denies the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, so that we can take our full reward. Now, how can we identify them? Well, such spiritual destroyers will deny the complete truthfulness and sufficiency of the Bible. They will deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, his full deity and his perfect humanity, his work of atonement on the cross as a perfect sacrifice and a satisfaction for our sin. They will deny also his sinless life, his virgin birth, his bodily resurrection, and his future return in glory. They will deny that salvation is a free gift received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They will deny that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior of mankind. Knowing these things, we must recognize the deceiver. We must recognize the false teacher. Now, the different doctrines in the Bible are vital for Christians and for the church. Doctrines do not change just because men think that they should change. And we can see how it's important that we abide in the truth so we can have our full reward, as John is saying. Now, verse 9 will talk about how those who have this distinctive of truth means that they have the Father and the Son. There is no much to interpret here in verse 9. It's really straightforward, and there's no room for any question. John is speaking clearly here. There's no mistake that the only way to abide with the Father and the Son is to follow biblical teaching. The only way to have real fellowship with believers is those who are following unity and truth and the biblical teaching. Now, something else to notice in verse 9 is how the Holy Spirit, through John, decided to talk about these people as people that go on ahead. It is not the same word, like the Greek word, it's not the same, it's not the same words, but in our day, we have a concept that is, that is progressist. And I am saying the concept because it's not 
a word. It's not even a word. I look it up at the Cambridge Dictionary, and progressist does not exist as a word. Nevertheless, in the media, in the contemporary narrative, progressist is one who advocates for political or social change. A progressist will not be content with an orthodox teaching, but they will need to walk ahead, they will need to evolve, they will need to move forward with the teachings, and normally they walk into heresy. Let me tell you about something that I found in the internet, and it's not going to be a pleasant thing that I, sh that, that I found. I was able to read a little bit about this, but there's a movement called progressive Christianity. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but what I did is like what we do in my generation. I just went to Google and type and see what was the first, the first results. And I know this is not profound and deep research, but I did this because most of us do that. That's the first approach we have almost to everything. We just go type it in Google and see what it, what it comes out. Let me read to you what it says in a website called Progressive Christianity, in, in their beliefs and what they believe. Number one says, believe that following the path of the teacher Jesus can lead to healing and wholeness and a mystical connection to God, as well as an awareness and experience of not only the sacred, but the oneness and the unity of all life. Two, affirm that the teaching of Jesus provides but one of many ways to experience God, the sacredness, the oneness, the unity of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, including earth, for our spiritual journey. The fifth point for them is find grace in the search of understanding and belief. There is more value in questioning with one open mind and open heart than in absolutes or dogma. Listen now about a church called Bethel Congregational United Church of Christ that is in Oregon. And they promote their Sunday gathering like this. Come to visit this Sunday and see a historic Protestant progressive Christian church in action. In the section of their progressive beliefs, it says, and I'm, gonna read, I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to quote some of them. One, the Christian faith is founded on three calls that we, that we see through Jesus. To love God, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves. Two, the Christian faith is our way to being faithful to God, but it's not the only way. Christianity is a truth for us, but it's not the only truth. The principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. We share our lives with many people who are Muslims, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, we experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. To deny, that, to deny that is to deny that God can only draw people with one way, through one way. That is simply not born out of our experience. The power of Christian faith to transform lives does not require it to be exclusively true. 
exclusivity is born out of fear. The fear that there is one train to God, and if you're not in the right train, you will go to hell. We believe there are many trains, and God welcomes them all. And probably, as we hear this, we are deeply disturbed. We may, may be sad for them, sorry for them. We might be angry of how they are using the name of Christ, how Christ's name is being misused. But the reality is that many of these stand with introducing a little false teaching in the desire of matching culture with Christianity. Those who thought that to be less strict with the biblical doctrine was okay, I believe they never thought it will end like this. Dear brothers and sisters, we might be scandalized of what we just heard. The problem starts when we don't get scandalized and aware when the little things in the doctrine, in the core doctrines of Christianity, are modified. I'm not talking about we should use, if we should use drums or electric guitars, or even some different theological approaches that we can have with some sound biblical believers. But I'm talking with people starts to define who is God, what is good and what is bad. When they start to define how God should say things and how God should interpret certain things of reality. This has to compel us to learn the truth, to be diligent in our desire to learn, to be willing to listen for those who lovingly and faithfully are telling us and are warning us about certain ministries or teachers that we are listening to. The most important thing is that we have to be reminded that just because someone uses Christian language or talks about their love to Jesus, as we just read, that doesn't mean we are in unity with them. I'm not saying that we have or we need to systematically mistrust people. But for the sake of the church of Christ, let's proclaim the gospel. Let's keep each of us accountable in the truth and rescue those who are getting lost. Those who deny Jesus and those who think that they have Jesus when they know they don't because of what they believe. Let's rescue those. I don't believe there's so, something more heartbreaking that someone coming before Christ and saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus saying, I don't know you. Unity means nothing if at the end, those whom we call brothers and sisters do not enter to the eternal rest. That unity is false. It's fake. As we approach the end of these verses, verses 10 and 11 teach us to reject those who don't have the distinctive of truth. It's just telling to his audience to be unkind, to be rude, by no means. 
But what John is telling here, what John is instructing here is to be careful. To don't support the mission of these ones. But to be careful and to be testing their teachings. John is instructing the people for not, to be, not to be of assistance of their mission. For not to partake in their mission. John is saying in verse 10, do not receive him into your house. He implies that a Christian who could provide hospitality was facilitating these teachings. That's what the hospitality means for Christians. It's not about open, opening our houses to a traveler. It's not about not receiving someone that it's in need. But it's to don't partake of their evil work. The word here about this relationship has a connotation, to be with them has a connotation of a formal relationship. John is talking about what has to bring us together has to be the association with truth. Now our last reason of why truth is preeminent is the truth of real fellowship, verses 12 and 13. As we have talked about the real love, that real love is sustained by truth, our fellowship is as well. John is clear when he expresses that there is more that has need to be said, but he wants to meet in person with his readers. Still, he expresses two beautiful truths that we cannot take for granted. And I don't know you, but I think the end of verse 12 makes a different impact for us today. Because we were not able to experience what was to meet together, to be together, to gather together, to see each other face to face. And now we've been able to, but there's some other fellows, fellow brothers and sisters that they cannot still. And we cannot take for granted that beauty that John is saying that to see another believer face to face is the experience of the fullness of joy. It's beautiful that we can gather. So we cannot take that for granted. These verses remind us that our fellowship has to do with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings together people from all tribes, languages, backgrounds, nations, ages. The identity of such a family rests in the truth of the gospel. The Bible is clear about the importance of perseverance. True love and faith is the definitive distinctive of Christians. As believers, we have to be aware of false teachings around us. We must be attentive to the elusive teachings that corrupt the biblical doctrines. We need to hold fast to the teachings that are sustained in the scriptures. Make no mistake, it is impossible to persevere when we give place to false teaching. The most hideous teaching started with the small and little deviation from truth. We need to be willing to identify false teaching that compromises biblical Christianity. But we also need to be willing to resist those teachings. In America, like probably no other place in the world, 
the Lord Jesus and Christianity are part of the culture. So that's why we have a lot of nominal Christians. And that is everywhere. And it's because of that very reason that we are called and compelled to preach the gospel. That is why we need to talk the real doctrines of the Bible. Believers should engage unbelievers. And believers also should help those who call themselves Christians to go out to be released from their theological mistakes. I'm not talking about different views on certain doctrinal aspects. I'm talking about clear theological mistake. We are not claiming here a superiority or an, a, a different understanding that anybody, anyone can have. But we should be motivated that we heard the true gospel by grace alone. When we see all the false, all the false teachings going on, we need to be aware and thankful to the Lord that we were able to receive the true gospel, and that is the true gospel that we need to share. I'm not saying here to anyone who has a little difference with us to call him a false teacher. But, I'm, but what I am saying is to be careful not to call everyone brother and sister immediately, but to talk to them, to engage with them, to love them. And I think a beautiful image is as parents, when you see your children a little bit down and you ask him, how are you doing? And he says, I'm doing fine. You don't trust that and you dig deeper. That's, the, that, that's how we're compelled to dig deep on those who call themselves to be our brothers and sisters to know that they are abiding in the truth. I have a responsibility with you guys and you guys have a responsibility with me to make sure that we are persevering in the truth. We need to be thankful to the Lord that we are able to hear the biblical explanation and the biblical teaching. As, and as children of grace, it's our job to resist false teaching with the preeminence of truth and love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Because if we think about it, it's so hard to understand why us. There's so many people out there that have heard about your son, Jesus Christ, but with not the right understanding. And Father, why you allow us to hear the biblical teaching? That is just your grace. And Father, I, I just pray that you will keep us in your truth, but also, Father, that you will move us and excite us to go out to proclaim the true gospel. That you, you will move us out of our comfort zone to be with them, to be with those who need to hear the true gospel, even if they think they have it. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for all the beautiful things that we have by grace alone in your son Jesus alone. And it's in that beautiful name that we pray. Amen.